Well, we are working our way through the book of Acts. We just started, so last week we looked at Acts chapter 1, and uh, we looked at really the first 11 verses primarily, and kind of answered the question, you know, Christ rose from the dead, He appeared to thousands of people, uh, and now what? What comes next in God's uh, plan of the ages, you know? Uh, The early believers, the apostles, those who walked and talked with Jesus, thought that he was going to usher in the long-awaited kingdom right then, that, uh, that when he came to Jerusalem for that final time, <clears throat> he was going to be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Instead, of course, he was crowned with thorns, paid the sin debt for all mankind, defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose on the third day, uh, and so it played out a little differently. Even though they should have known all that was going to happen, first of all, the Old Testament prophets uh, had predicted uh, these things, but also Jesus had talked about them with greater frequency the closer he got to the end of his three and a half year ministry. But nevertheless, <clears throat> it caught them off guard. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so finally, the, he, he's resurrected. He's appeared for 40 days uh, to lots of people, and he finds himself on the Mount of Olives with the disciples. He gives some concluding instructions, as we talked about last week, and then he is caught up in the clouds. And so then we're going to actually skip to chapter two this morning, but let me just fill in the gaps so that we uh, don't uh, kind of miss anything. But in chapter one, verses 12 to 26, if you go back and read that, they go back to Jerusalem, they have a prayer meeting. And then the first order of business is to replace Judas uh, as one of the 12 who proved not to be a believer. And John's gospel tells us that. Uh, And so they cast lots, a lot fell with Matthias, and Matthias became uh, the new 12th uh, disciple. And uh, they, that was important to them because Jesus had promised that they would sit on 12 thrones <clears throat> when he came back and set up the kingdom on earth. So they wanted to make sure that 12th throne was not empty. So then after that, we pick up the story of the early church in Acts chapter 2. And I'm calling this Catch the Wind, and if you know what goes on in Acts chapter 2, you'll understand uh, why. But the wind can be a powerful force. And uh, around here, we all experienced that here recently, just before the end of the year, start of the new year. Wow, I mean, it was uh, an apocalyptic type wind, someone said. And even in our, up down in uh, the the Springs area, we had a tree that blew over and broke our fence. And we were driving around that day and saw, uh, you know, traffic lights spun around opposite directions. So you'd come to an intersection and you wouldn't be able to see it. We saw uh, construction barrels rolling around and blowing across the road. And it was just a powerful, powerful windstorm, uh, the likes of which we don't see uh, very often. Uh, the wind is, is a powerful force. It can create major damage. It can generate electricity. It can move mighty ships along the ocean when it catches their sails. The wind can steer hurricanes. Amazing. Of course, so can the government with geoengineering, but that's another story. Uh, But in Acts chapter 2, Luke, uh, who of course is the author, remember, of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, uses the wind as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Excuse me, it's, not, it's the perfect analogy. In fact, it's not the only time in the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, that the Holy Spirit is likened to the wind. In fact, in Greek, the same word 
for spirit is the word for wind. Um, but it's, it's a great metaphor because that's the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He carries us along. Uh, the way the wind moves ships across the sea. He catches our lives the way the wind catches the sails. And when that happens, amazing things happen. Now the problem is, uh, we're often not ready for the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. You know, it, it, to extend the metaphor, if the sails aren't raised, there's nothing for the wind to catch. And so, how can we catch the wind of the Holy Spirit? That's really the question. You know, as I, as I look around at the church in the world today, I, I really feel like we've lost our way. We touched on this a little bit in our nine o'clock study, but, you know, most churches are not following the Word of God and His Spirit as He seeks to lead us. You know, there's a picture that I saw in in the context of all these uh, tornadoes and stuff across the Midwest and the winds across Colorado here that led to those fires that I think serves as a discouraging metaphor for the church today. The wind caught this steeple and nearly ripped it off the church roof. You know, steeples, if you know the, the history, are supposed to point up and point to Christ is the idea who sits in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us. Steeples are intended to call attention ultimately to Jesus Christ himself. And yet, sadly, most churches today are leading people not to Christ and his word, but away, unwittingly in some cases. Uh, they're not pointing people in the right direction. So when's the last time you felt the clear, unmistakable presence and leading of the Holy Spirit in your life? When's the last time you caught the wind of the Holy Spirit? You know, the Holy Spirit is, is sometimes called the forgotten person of the Trinity. You remember, God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet the three are one. Uh, he, there never has been a time when God didn't exist, never will be a time when He doesn't exist. He's the only uncreated being. He spoke everything else, the entire universe, into being. And the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, most people are kind of afraid of the Holy Spirit. They don't, really, they don't know much about it. That's why I love teaching through the book of Acts, as I mentioned to our earlier uh, group. You know, it, it, it kind of forces you to deal with so many biblical, important topics as the church is growing and expanding that you might otherwise overlook. And right out of the chute, we see the presence and role and impact of the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, the Holy Spirit takes on a new ministry. Uh, he didn't come into existence in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit's, again, eternal. He is God. But as Jesus promised, he, the Holy Spirit is going to take on a new role and a new ministry. Jesus Christ was with us for three and a half years. And as we talked about last week, to be a disciple of Him meant to literally follow Him in close proximity. But with Him being gone, physically... Uh, now the Holy Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit is our leader. So as we take a look at this famous chapter in Acts, we, we see the Holy Spirit get a hold of first some 120 people on the day of Pentecost, just four weeks or so after Christ's resurrection. 
50 days to be exact. And I, I, I want to, I know this is a big chunk. We're going to do all 39 verses. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to break it up into four bite-sized uh, sections, if you will. And each section gives us an important principle when it comes to catching the wind of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The first section is the first four verses, and I'm calling this the powerful Holy Spirit. The powerful Holy Spirit. So in part one of his two-volume work, Luke had introduced the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry with his baptism, and then he paralleled this. Remember the dove came and rested upon him. Then he paralleled this with the beginning of Jesus' heavenly minister, ministry, now with the spirit baptism of his disciples. The same, what we need to understand, again, is the spirit is eternal. The same spirit that empowered Jesus during his earthly ministry, the same spirit whom Jesus said would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, is now empowering and indwelling every believer, including the disciples. So Luke begins chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The they refers back to the 120 disciples that Luke has already mentioned in chapter 1. Pentecost is a Greek word that just means 50th, and it, it's, it's the feast that fell on the 50th day after Passover. So indeed, this is the 50th day after Passover. Uh, and uh, the day of Pentecost, it was an annual feast, sometimes called the Feast of uh, first fruits, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvests. It's when the Jews uh, celebrated uh, a number of things, but specifically the anniversary of the giving of the Mosaic Law. Uh, after his conversion, Paul would later on explain that the Spirit's indwelling presence is God's replacement for the external guidance of the Mosaic Law. So, in other words, you know, the law was God's sort of way of keeping order. Uh, Paul says in Galatians that the law, the Old Testament law for the Jews, was a tutor, uh, kind of a nanny, if you will, that was put in place until Christ came, Galatians chapter 3. But now that Christ has come, fulfilled his ministry, paid for the sins of the world, the suffering servant, rose from the dead, uh, the Spirit of God is our guide. We're not under the law anymore. We're under the law, if you will, that's written on our hearts, the Spirit of God. And so here we are on the day of Pentecost, just weeks after Christ's resurrection, and God is receiving not the first fruits of some wheat harvest, but a new crop of believers, Christians, on this momentous celebration of Pentecost. And on this occasion, Luke tells us, suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but we know from extra-biblical literature that this was most likely John Mark's mother's house, which kind of served as the meeting place in Jerusalem there for the early disciples. But the sound like wind came from heaven, the place where Jesus had just gone as we read about last week. And the noise symbolized the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. You know, there's wind, right, that you can see the effects of if you happen to be looking outside and you see leaves rustling. But then there's that wind that you can hear. 
And you may be just sitting, not anywhere near a window, but all of a sudden you hear the sound of uh, the wind. And uh, Ezekiel and Jesus both had previously used the wind as an illustration of God's Spirit. Remember in John 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. But on this occasion, it was a powerful, mighty, rushing wind. So if you want to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, there are four things that you have to avoid. Um, four principles, if you will, and one with each of the sections that I'm going to talk about. And the first principle is this. Never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. Never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. You know, if you're sitting in a room and you hear that mighty sound of a wind, especially if you're in the Midwest or the Southeast where they get a lot of tornadoes, you know, they say tornadoes can sound like freight trains, you know. How silly would it be, you know, you're sitting there reading the magazine or maybe watching some TV and you hear this powerful sound of a wind. It rattles the windows, the whole house is shaking. And you go, oh, that's interesting. And go right back to what you were doing. I mean, that would be crazy, right? No, the first thing you do is head for the basement or head for your storm shelter, right? Never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. In the same way, many believers today are so uh, dull in their hearing to the presence of the Holy Spirit that they disregard it. If you want to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. Luke goes on to say, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So fire is another uh, symbol of the, the presence of God. We see this throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The believers here receive, therefore, not just a audible indication that the promised Holy Spirit of God had come, but a visual, visual one uh, as well. And apparently the fire came at first in one piece, and then it separated into individual flames, making it seem like tongues of fire. Uh, you know, in our Wednesday night study on how to read and understand the Bible, we're very soon going to be getting to the section where I talk about figures of speech. And one of the principles for interpreting figures of speech is when a when an inanimate object takes on a, a form that doesn't make sense, that's obviously a figure of speech. You know, this was a visual representation of fire, but when it divided, the little flames of fire looked like little tongues. And they came and they sat on each, or rested over each one of these believers. I mean, God could scarcely have visualized the distribution of the Holy Spirit to every individual believer more clearly. The Spirit had in the past abode, for example, on the whole nation of Israel, or maybe occasionally anointing certain leaders and kings and so forth. Uh, it had been symbolized corporately as a pillar of fire, if you think back to the wilderness wanderings. But now, in this new day, in what Paul would later call in Ephesians a new dispensation, a new era, a new way of God interacting with his people, the Holy Spirit came upon every person. And what we're going to find out as we read through the New Testament and, we, and God reveals more of the truth of his word to us, is that today, unlike any other age or any future age, by the way, every believer, every child of God, every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins and is their only hope for salvation, 
receives the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's unique. What an incredible blessing of this present age. And so Luke goes on to say that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Uh, that refers to the ability to speak in a known but unlearned language as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we're going to come up against tongues frequently in this uh, survey of the book of Acts, uh, so I won't take the time to really do an in-depth uh, uh, explanation of that, but understand that tongues in Scripture was always the ability to speak in a known but unlearned language. It never, ever meant, nor do we have any historical record of it meaning, random syllabification or gibberish, like a lot of what takes place in the modern uh, church. <clears throat> And so uh, we know from Isaiah the prophet that the purpose, that, that this was uh, a prophecy, this is the fulfillment of prophecy, by the way, this idea of tongues, that the nation of Israel would need a sign to validate that this new move of God was legit. And the sign that Isaiah the prophet said they would receive, was, would receive is that people would be able to speak in a language they'd never studied, never learned, that just supernaturally the Spirit of God would allow them to speak in that language. And so this is all part of God's plan on this momentous uh, occasion. So uh, the Spirit uh, wanted to get the attention of the crowd. And boy, did he. Because something special was uh, taking place. And what better way to do that than through the sound of a mighty rushing wind, a, a visible representation of flames of fire. And then now, through the ability of people to, to speak in a known but unlearned language. Um, you know, the, the uh, disciples, uh, many of them were Galileans, and they had a particular dialect that they, that they used, and it would have been astonishing to the broader crowd to hear them speak in these sophisticated uh, languages around there. And this was all uh, God's way through the Holy Spirit of getting everyone's attention and explaining something major is about to happen. So never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. As we see the church begin to grow, I mean, it's just now, it hasn't even really formed yet. It's just beginning to form in this moment in Acts chapter 2. Um, we see the Spirit playing a central role, powerful role in the early church. And I think what's happened after 2,000 years is we've, he hasn't moved, right? You know, but we've kind of drifted away from not only the Word, but the Spirit of God. And so it's no wonder that the church is essentially impotent today. And that's why I was so moved by what happened at Plum Creek here over the last month as we were facing, I mean, this, this was a difficult season. Three of our five board members were down and out, two of them hospitalized. Uh, many others from our church body were sick um, and others also hospitalized. Um, and, and yet the body rose up, prayed, sought the Lord, the Spirit of God led, and we, we won this little skirmish, you know. Satan's always attacking. And I think I mentioned to someone, you know, I, I've been waiting for the Spirit of God, I mean, for the Satan, Satan to try to attack Plum Creek Chapel because, you know, we stand for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. We stand firm for the Word of God. We also took a stand vocally and uh, publicly against uh, the tyranny that was being handed down 
in our country. <clears throat> and so I thought, well, Satan doesn't like that. And yet, you know, we continued by God's grace to just grow and, and make a difference. And then, but then it hit. And uh, Satan needs to be on notice that he failed. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a rough hit, but it wasn't a knockout. And as long as we continue to follow the Spirit, we're not going to be knocked out at, uh, at Plum Creek Chapel. So if you, if you want uh, to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. I love this quote by William Barclay. I don't always agree with him. He was a, a 20th century a Scottish theologian. <clears throat> but this quote is, is worth mentioning. He said, No great decision was ever taken, no important step was ever embarked upon by the early church without the guidance of the Spirit. The early church was a spirit-guided community. And notice this, in the first 13 chapters of Acts, there are more than 40 references to the Holy Spirit. The early church was a spirit-filled church, and precisely therein lay its power. And yet today, churches tend not to even talk about the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> When's the last time you noticed the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Where is he? Can you sense his presence? Never disregard his presence. Now, before we get to the second section, <clears throat> I'm going to shift into teaching mode for a second because we need to understand what was really going on. This was the beginning of a new thing. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> never happened before, but it happens now, the moment anybody places their faith in Christ. So for all of those believers at that moment when the church was beginning in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, they were already believers, but there had to be a way for them to get the Holy Spirit. And that's what was happening in this moment. After that, from that point on, anytime someone got saved by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him, him alone, they received the Holy Spirit instantly. <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit's role of permanent indwelling is closely related to the Holy Spirit's ministry of baptism. And that's different from filling. So we need to understand the distinction. <clears throat> the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion only one time. If you've trusted in Christ, you've been baptized by the Spirit. That means you've been identified with Christ. Baptism just means to identify with. Baptism did not come into being in the first century with Christianity. It's an ancient custom that goes all the way back to pagan religions. It's, it's common, very common. Moses had a baptism. There was proselyte baptism. John the Baptist had a baptism. Jesus Christ himself was baptized. There's Christian water baptism. There's also the Spirit's baptism. Baptism just means identified. So when you got saved, the Holy Spirit identified you with Christ. Paul would later describe that as being in Christ. Being in Christ, a unique privilege of the present uh, believers of the present age. <clears throat> so again, every believer experiences this. It was new at Pentecost. It's permanent. It results in our position in Christ. And uh, there's no prerequisite other than receiving the free gift of eternal life by faith. The filling of the Holy Spirit, however, happens from the beginning of time. And that's whenever the Holy Spirit leads an individual believer. Uh, filling, we talked about this last week a little bit, just means to let the Holy Spirit lead you. He's the one uh, influencing you, right? So think influence. And uh, it re results in power in our lives. We're not always filled with the Spirit. We're not always letting the Spirit lead. If you're walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit, you're not letting the Spirit lead. You're not being filled with the Spirit. As I said last week, that doesn't mean that, you know, like your body is this vessel and you've got to pour in a bunch of Spirit. And some people have this much or this much or this much. To be filled means to let the Spirit lead. 
It's the analogy that I used last week. If you can fill a water with, fill a bucket with water, but you can also fill a bucket with a hose. That's the way it's used here. Filled with the Spirit means the Spirit's the one doing the filling. And He's leading you and influencing you the same way wine influences people who get uh, drunk or alcohol influences people who get drunk. So uh, these are two important distinctions to understand in the ministries of the Holy Spirit. If you know the Lord Jesus by faith, you've already been baptized by the Spirit and your position is in Christ. But as a believer, you ought to also let the Holy Spirit lead by yielding to Him. And that's what we mean when we talk about catching the wind. you got to notice it first of all, and then you got to follow Him. you got to follow Him. The second section is what I'm calling the puzzled crowd. So you've got all these people gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The Spirit of God comes down. There's the disciples are speaking in tongues. And notice what Luke says. He says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. It's a little unclear contextually whether the sound that Luke's referring to here was the rushing wind or the tongues. But in, when, when in doubt, you go with the nearest reference. So it's probably referring to the fact that all these people were speaking in tongues. Um, and so whatever it was that got their attention, these residents of Jerusalem came running. Word spread fast, and they wanted to hear what was going on. They wanted to see what was happening. Uh, they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. right? And so then uh, the Jews in Jerusalem who could not speak Aramaic would have known Greek, so there would be no need for other languages. And yet what they heard were the languages that were common in the remotest places in which they lived. People came from all over the region to, to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And since about 3,000 of them, we find out at the end of chapter 2, got saved, became Christians, then the multitude uh, that he mentions there must have been many thousands, because not everybody believed that day. So when he says when this sound occurred, the multitude, that's probably thousands of people. Um, came running. Uh, by the way, about 200,000 people could assemble in the temple area. So that gives you some frame of reference. And maybe that's where this multitude uh, congregated. We don't really uh, know. Uh, and so then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And Luke goes on to give a list of geographic regions from which the people in the crowd hailed, and all of them heard the mighty deeds of God in their own language. In other words, they heard the gospel. And this is, by the way, a reversal of what took place at Babel. So this is, again, a new dispensation, and it illustrates the human unity that the unhindered working of the Holy Spirit can bring. When there's confusion, Babel, we talked about that in the first session today, uh, you can't have unity. But when you can all hear and understand, then you come together. But notice uh, it says, others mocked and said, they are full of new wine. They are full of new wine. Now, Peter begins his famous sermon, which we're just about to look at, by addressing those who were mocking what was going on. 
But the second principle, before we get to the third section, the second principle, if you want to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, is never discredit the Holy Spirit's power. Never discredit the Holy Spirit's power. I mean, these people, not only did they disregard his presence, but they mocked and tried to discredit him. So ask yourself, what powerful thing is the Holy Spirit doing in your life? And give credit where credit is due. Never discredit the Holy Spirit's power. And you can see how these principles are progressive. You've got to recognize the Holy Spirit's presence before you can give him credit. But be careful not to discredit the Holy Spirit's power. If you remember during Jesus' life, different context, a little bit different circumstance, but some of the Jewish leaders were attributing to Satan the miracles that Jesus was doing. And uh, Jesus you know, said they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit by doing so. So never discredit the Holy Spirit's power. Then the third section is Peter's sermon. And wow, what a great sermon. I wish we had time to just, I mean, we could spend weeks just dissecting each line of this sermon, but I really believe the time is short, and I want us to get through some of these sections of Acts and really draw some principles, uh, because I don't know how much longer we're going to be here, right? Uh, so this isn't the time to parse every Greek word and look at every pronoun and spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through line by line. We want to teach the whole counsel of God, but we want to look at it more synthetically and a little bit less analytically than some uh, might uh, prefer. So Peter, it says, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. In other words, Peter says, don't miss what the Holy Spirit is doing and what he's about to say through me. Don't miss it. Let this be known to you and heed my words. And that brings us to the third principle, part of this third section. Never dismiss the Holy Spirit's point. If you want to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, never dismiss his point. See, some people recognize his presence. They give credit where credit is due. But then it goes in one ear and out the other. It's an easy thing to do. You know, the Holy Spirit tells us something, tries to get our attention, and we say, uh, no thanks. <laughs> Go away. Not now. Right? Uh, I, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read a recent devotional, not this one from last week, but the previous week. I called it, Turn Down the Volume So You Can Hear. And in it, I talk about hearing the voice uh, of the Holy Spirit. But never dismiss the Holy Spirit's point. That's basically what Peter is saying before he launches into this powerful sermon that resulted in the birthday of the church and 3,000 souls being saved. He says, let this be known to you and heed my words. And then he addresses those mockers, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, the translation here is a little bit different. Uh, the, the, remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. The idea here is he's saying, consider what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He is not saying that what was happening in that moment was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And that's pretty self-evident if you just use good observation skills and read through what Peter says. Because even the parts of Joel's prophecy that Peter quotes right here in his sermon did not happen on that day. 
So he, he could not have meant, you know, this is the fulfillment of what Joel was saying. See, a lot of replacement theologians who think Israel is no more and that the church is the new Israel and that there's no future kingdom and no future temple and no future earthly reign of Christ, they say, see, all of that the prophets you know, were predicting that would happen for Israel really was going to happen spiritually and metaphorically in the church today. And that's uh, simply not the case. <clears throat> but then he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And so this is Peter's sermon, but he's quoting Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, <clears throat> that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will show wonders in heaven and signs in the earth uh, below. And, uh, and so, you know, what he's talking about here is in the Joel passage is the second coming. And we see this very clearly played out in the book of Revelation with cosmic signs and wonders. And Peter, uh, Joel goes on to give a lot more details about the blood's uh, the, the moon turning to blood and the cosmic signs and wonders <clears throat> in Revelation then tells us exactly how that's going to play out. But at the return of Christ, indeed, there will be all kinds of amazing cosmic signs and wonders. Jesus himself talks about them in the Olivet Discourse, and as I just said, Revelation mentions them uh, as well. So Peter is basically saying, look, this type of mighty move of the Spirit of God should not surprise you because the prophets of old talked about such a thing. And if the prophets of old talked about them, then this isn't something unexplainable. You can't pass this off as just a bunch of drunkards. This is another example of a legitimate move of God. So as we find out in reading through the New Testament and the epistles, once they begin to be written by Paul and others, the church is intended to be a microcosm of the coming kingdom. The church, Paul tells us in Romans, is to get Israel's attention. It's to show in, 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 uh, as a foreshadowing or a foretaste of what life will be like fully in the kingdom. So in the present age, we have the indwelling spirit, but he doesn't, it doesn't result in perfect obedience, right? Anybody in here ever quench the spirit and not do what the spirit says? And Anybody ever sin? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, Gary, would you get a pen and just jot a few names down here? Uh, you got it? Good. All right. Uh, no, of course we do, right? We can yield to the Spirit or we can grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit, and not walk in the Spirit. But in the kingdom, you go back and read Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, when the kingdom comes, believers will be perfectly righteous. They will not sin in the kingdom someday. And so the church, in many ways, is a foreshadowing of the kingdom. And so it's natural that Peter, who, by the way, still thought the kingdom was going to come any second. I mean, they were just they were always looking with one eye up because they knew Christ was coming back just like he promised. And so it's natural for him to be thinking about second coming passages. And he says to these mockers, look, this shouldn't surprise you. Joel talked about this kind of thing, right? Uh, he goes on to say, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, uh, a man attested to you uh, by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The resurrection is crucial, and Peter's sermon here on the day of Pentecost is all about the resurrection. He says to the crowd, the Jews that were gathered there, this Jesus, everybody knew him, he'd been made quite an impact for three and a half years, but this Jesus whom you crucified has now been resurrected. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. Uh, and it goes on in verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Uh, 
meaning the 120. And then uh, he says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's now pouring out this which you now see and hear. Remember, the cloven tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind. He, this is Jesus doing exactly what he promised in the upper room he would do, sending of the Holy Spirit. And he also promised that on Mount of Olives right before he ascended. Uh, skipping ahead, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Pretty clear <clears throat> what the message was. And so the, the third principle is, if you want to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, never dismiss the Holy Spirit's point. Now, many did on that day. Many still turned a deaf ear and said, nope, we're not, we're not going to believe. We're not going to believe. But 3,000 plus did believe. So let's look at the people's response. That's the final section. <clears throat> Very interesting little three verses here. Uh, after Peter powerfully preached that message, by the way, I forgot to mention when I was briefly mentioning the rest of chapter 1, where they went back to uh, Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, they had a prayer meeting, and then they replaced uh, Judas with Matthias. Peter's the one that took the lead. And that's what we're going to see again and again in the book of Acts that we call a walk-on. A walk-on. It's when uh, Luke, the historian, mentions someone in passing in a lesser role who then takes a primary role. Right? He kind of walked on the scene a little bit, and he's the one that said, hey guys, let's pray, and let's, let's, let's pick a new disciple. But then, boy, the next chapter, he is preaching this long sermon, this powerful sermon that results in thousands of people getting saved. Uh, but let's look at their response. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. That word in Greek means convinced convicted, it means they believed. We believe you, Peter. We believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ. We believe that he died and rose again. And this is precisely what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when he came. He, he said in the upper room, when he's come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the people said, or Luke tells us the people were convinced. And so they say, now what? What should we do? You know, it's like the new believer who comes to faith in Christ. And everybody has different reactions. Remember, getting saved isn't a factor of emotion. Some people weep. Some people rejoice. Some people, you know, have a pretty stoic reaction. It's a matter of believing in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sin. When faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal salvation every time. Emotions can play, a, you know, can be a factor, but they don't play a role in whether or not you get saved or not. And um, so it's like when a person gets saved and they they express faith in Christ, and then they're like, "Wow, I am, you know, now now what?" And hopefully, there's a believer, a mature believer there that can disciple them and say, "Well, you know, here's." Here's what, as a new child of, of God in Christ, you need to find a good Bible teaching church. You need to read your Bible. You need to foster and grow that faith that has now been born. You're a babe, baby Christian who needs to desire the pure milk of the Word. 
You need to be baptized as an outward expression of something that's already happened. Water baptism doesn't save anybody, but it's a good uh, next step. Uh, so there are things that you need to do. And I, I think that's exactly what these new believers who responded favorably to Peter's message were saying. We're convinced. Now what? We're convinced. Now what? So that leads then to the fourth and final principle. Never discount the Holy Spirit's purpose. Never discount the Holy Spirit's purpose. If you want to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, His purpose is to convict. Initially, He convicts you of your need for a Savior. As a believer, He convicts you when you're getting away from the Lord, when you're out of step, when you're walking in the flesh, when you're doing things that are fleshly, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, John calls them. Instead of what the Spirit wants. Remember Galatians 5? The fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking in the flesh, these are the things that are going to probably develop. Right? Pride, jealousy, lust, anger, wrath, all these things. But when you're walking in the Spirit, it's going to be love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Right? So if you want to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, never discount the Holy Spirit's purpose. He wants to get your attention, yes, he wants to cut you to the heart, yes. He wants to convince you. And he wants to, to lead and guide you, right? So Peter answers their question. Oh, you, you want to know what to do now? Repent. Remember the word repent just means to change your thinking, change your mind. It's a compound word in Greek, meta, naeo, meta, again, naeo, to think, means to think again. It's used 58 times in the New Testament. In its noun and verb form, the, the noun is metanoia. metanoia. Uh, and so, obviously, like any word, context has to determine meaning. Uh, change your mind about what? So a lot of people, I think, miss the point of Acts 2.38. They think Acts 2.38 is a presentation of how to get saved, how to go to heaven. It's not. It's an answer of Peter to those who'd already just gotten saved. They were convinced which is what the Bible says 160 times in the New Testament alone you have to do to be saved, believe. 160 times. Uh, they, were belie they believed the message of the death and resurrection of Christ. And now they wanted to know what to do next. And so, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for or because of, is the idea there, that Greek preposition, or I mean Greek, uh, yeah, preposition for, uh, because your sins have been forgiven. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, this is what was all taking place on that momentous day some 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit was coming, first among those who had already believed. They came to Pentecost as believers, like the disciples, for example. And they needed to receive the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and be baptized into the body of Christ. Others who then believed uh, were also permanently indwelt. He says, you shall receive. It doesn't mean they needed to do something to get it. You know, faith is an instantaneous moment when you pass from death to life. Who's to say when that really happens? You know, we mark the moment uh, by maybe praying a prayer or walking an aisle or, or, or doing something. I was six years old when I came to faith in Christ. I prayed a prayer of faith on the top bunk of my bunk beds at night when my dad came in on a Sunday night and I had heard the preacher give a clear gospel that night at Sunday evening uh, church and uh, <clears throat> I said, "Hey, something like I, I don't want to go to hell, or I know I know I need to be saved." And so that's when I've kind of always marked the moment. 
But in reality, I think when we get to heaven, we're all going to find that maybe it happened slightly before that. Mm -hmm. It's whenever the light bulb goes off, if you will. It's whenever you, in simple childlike faith, come to the recognition that you're a sinner who needs a Savior and you trust in Jesus Christ alone, abandoning your faith in anything else, saying, nope, he's the only one that can save me and I'm trusting him to save me. In that instant, you pass from death to life, you're regenerated, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you're baptized into the body of Christ, you're declared perfectly righteous before a holy God, justified. Uh, you know, you're reconciled to a holy God. There's some 33 things that happen spiritually instantly the moment we believe the gospel. So don't get hung up over the sequence here. And again, I think we've oversimplified this verse and made Acts 2.38. You see it in a lot of gospel tracts. I don't use it in gospel tracts that we use it not by works because it's not really, I don't think, telling you how to be saved. Uh, it doesn't even use the word faith, which 160 times the New Testament says is the one way to be saved, one and only way to be saved. Um, so he's giving them the next steps and those who believed indeed receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. For he goes on to say, this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, meaning Jews and Gentiles, and as many as the Lord our God will call. See, the Holy Spirit is still calling people today. This was the beginning. And last week I showed you from Scripture how we know that this was the moment the church began. Peter actually calls it a beginning. And Paul tells us it formed a body, and then he calls that body the church. Uh, but the Holy Spirit still calls people today. So, as we kind of review, uh, never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. Never discredit the Holy Spirit's power. Never dismiss the Holy Spirit's point, And never discount the Holy Spirit's purpose. The wind is a powerful thing. The Holy Spirit is even much, much more powerful, exponentially more powerful. So what's the takeaway? Well, here's what I would say. Watch for the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and catch the wind. Catch the wind. It's so easy to be distracted, especially with all that's going on in, in, in life these days. Always make time through the Word of God, not subjectively or mystically or some weird, you know, see a vision in a bowl of spaghetti or something. But through the Word of God, through the Word of God, let the Spirit of God speak and catch the wind. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this wonderful passage that recounts the, the birthday of your church. And we know that uh, you love the church. And even with all of our warts and flaws, uh, which we confess before you even now, we pray uh, we thank you that it's a, it's a privilege to be a part of, of your body. And we pray that we would be equal to the task, that we would rise up, do what you've called us to do, be who you want us to be, and most of all, that we would uh, be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives and follow his leading day after day after day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Amen.